Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. And use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court. I've been looking forward to talking to this man for a long time because he used to talk to me quite a bit. He's had an amazing career. John Feinstein, uh, an author of 42 books, some of them children's books, which have been very successful, but many of them sports-related books. Of course, uh, you probably know him from A Season on the Brink, which was the New York Times bestseller, uh, as well as A Good Walk Spoiled. And he's written numerous others about golf, about football, about uh, basketball, college basketball. And he actually, believe it or not, wrote one on tennis back in the 90s. Uh, and Yours truly played a little part in that one. So, John, good to have you. Thanks for joining me. And uh, we can reminisce about hard courts. In fact, my book that I wrote, of course, I can't hold a candle to you in that department, Hard Court Confidential. So I sort of stole <laughs> your name a little bit. So all the money that's rolling in for me on that book, you know, I'll send some your way, John. I would be delighted, Patrick. Uh, uh, my ex-wife would be delighted, too. <laughs> uh, she wouldn't have to be bug me for alimony quite as much, but... Uh, a lot of fond memories from hard yep. courts. As I said to you the other day, it's hard to believe it's been 30 years. Um, and you, you played more than just a little role. You, you, were, you played a pretty prominent role. Uh, and I, I've told you before how much I appreciated all the time that you gave me back then. So I'm more than glad to give you a few minutes here. Oh, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it's funny when you mentioned that to me as we were texting, sort of setting up a time to do this uh, interview, I thought, wow, I said, yeah, I was, you know, mid-20s at that point. I think it was the 1990 season that you were discussing. Correct. So, yeah, I was just out of college, a couple of years out of college, sort of making my way on the tour. And I thought to myself, you know, John's not that much older than me. And I looked up, to, I looked at you as like, you know, there's such a mature guy, this author, he's so smart, he's done. You were only in your mid-30s at that point when you wrote this book. And already you had this amazing resume. Well, I don't know about that. I'm older than you. Let's put it that way. Um, Marginal. But, uh, <laughs> it feels like more and more okay. every year. My 10-year-old my daughter, who I mentioned to you when we were talking, likes to point out to me that I'm very old whenever she gets the chance. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, that, that, was a, that was a fun, fun – it was, a, it was a, a, a hectic year because right. I was doing what you guys do, traveling the world to right. follow – the tennis tours. And, uh, that was really kind of a breakthrough year for you. Cause you started winning in singles. You were already right. successful in doubles right. at that point. Yep. And, and, and you and your doubles partner, Jim grab, mm -hmm. uh, had and have a distinction because in the process of researching that book, there were certain questions I asked everybody, mm -hmm. what do you want to do when you stop playing tennis was one. Right. And the answer always was, oh, I'm going to be on TV. Mm. And of course about eight of you, have gone on to be on, on TV because <laughs> right, right. there just aren't that many jobs. But I also asked everyone, have you been to the Louvre? Mm. I mean, you're in Paris for two, three weeks every year, right? Right. And right. the only two people who said they had been to the Louvre 
of the 150 I interviewed were you and Jim, and I think you went together. Yeah, we went together because we were playing doubles together, and that was actually the year before because we you, we were talking in, in 90, it was 89, that we won the French Open. So you won we, the French doubles, yeah, right. we won the French Open doubles. Yeah, and, and then a couple of years later, you made the Australian right. semis, uh, yep. building on what you did in 90. Yep. Um, and uh, but, but think about that. I, I, mm. I still remember Martina Navratilova spent 20 minutes. I like Martina. 20 minutes giving me all the reasons why she'd never been to the Louvre. And I was like, Martina, it's okay. <laughs> right. You're right. like everybody else. Right. Because as you know, most athletes, professional athletes, particularly individuals, golfers, mm. tennis, who travel the world, see the hotel, the practice courts, and where they're playing, and maybe a couple of restaurants. Mm-hmm. And usually they go to the same restaurant if they win. You know, they got to keep going back to the same one. Yes, or you got to keep going to the same, the same restaurant. Meal. I, do you remember right. the year Andre Agassi complained when he was in Paris because he couldn't find a McDonald's? <laughs> I do remember that. Amazing. See, this is why you only wrote one book on tennis. You were just like, this is just ridiculous. I got to ask you about that because, I mean, I, look, obviously I'm, I live in the tennis world. I know what it's like. Right. I've seen what the last year in the pandemic has done to professional tennis from a financial standpoint. Like I'm talking about right. the finance because you know, I'm trying to get my arms around, okay, well, how's tennis going to grow? Number one, which we all know in this country, in the U S is, is difficult, is challenging in the best of times. Okay. But um, when you look at tennis from the perspective of covering so many sports as you do, still writing columns, even today for the Washington post, which as you told me are either football or basketball. Why? Because that, time, right? yeah, cause that's what people want to hear about. Now, you've had the luxury of yep. being able to write, your books about all different sports as specifically as you, you know, a lot on golf, obviously football as well, but what, what, what's the biggest challenge in your view for tennis, just from a financial perspective and, and, and moving forward now, particularly as, you know, we hope we're coming out of the pandemic, but you know, you comparing it to the other sports, obviously golf is the easiest comparison because the individual nature, but just in general, like your thoughts on, kind of why tennis struggles maybe more so than those other sports? Well, the, 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 the two reasons I'm going to put in front of you are entirely different okay. and then not connected. I remember, and, I'm, and you do too, in, in the mid-80s when your, your brother was starting to get a little bit older, Jimmy Connors was starting to get older. I won't bring up his one comeback in 91 at the Open because I know that's <laughs> painful. Right. Um, but I remember Arthur Ashe, who was the Davis Cup captain at the time. Right saying to me one day, where's the, where's the next McEnroe? Where's mm. the next Connors? Mm. And he, as Davis cup captain, he was concerned. And uh, your brother always played Davis cup. Jimmy almost never played Davis cup, right. but and along came Pete Sampras, mm-hmm. Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, Michael Chang, even David Wheaton was a very good player, mm-hmm. just not on that level. Yeah, Mal Washington, that, Todd Martin. I mean, these were top 10 players. Yeah. And Todd Martin yeah. was a, was a U.S. open finalist right. and, and, and Mal was a good player. Mm-hmm. So, so we had this plethora of really good American players on the men's side. Now the women's side is a different issue, but mm-hmm. let's talk men for a minute. Okay. Then behind all those guys comes Andy Roddick, right. who wins the U.S. Open in 2003 when he's 21, almost wins Wimbledon in 2009, still one of the great matches I've ever seen um, with Federer. And since then, nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. I mean, we haven't had... Uh, a player, uh, a male player, and forget winning, we haven't had one in a final since Roddick in 2009. Right. You know, and I remember when Francis Tiafo got to the, I think it was quarters. the quarters. Quarters, yeah. To go. 
Right. And people were going crazy. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, wait a minute, this guy's three years older today than John McEnroe was when he won his first major. Right. Because John was 19 when he won the Open for the first time. And so I, and I remember back in those, that mid 80s period when pe- before, you know, came along. Right. People, people, people like Yvonne Lendl and Matt Vilander, who were the top two players in the world at the time, saying, we have to have an American star in tennis. Mm-hmm. We need an American star in tennis. And we, look, we are in an absolute golden era of men's tennis. You could make the case that the three greatest players of all time have been playing for the last dozen years. Right. Now, there are people, you know, people like your brother who would put Rod Laver mm-hmm. right there with those guys. He lost five years of his career playing majors because of the, you know, archaic rules about professionals, quote unquote, right. in the 60s. But you can make the, at worst, three of the five best players of all time are playing right now, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But oh, none of them sure. are American. Right. So you, you, I mean, you, they speak English better than you and I do. <laughs> right. They don't right. write as well as you, but okay. Right. Yeah, well, I don't know. You do, have we ever seen anything that Federer's written? I'll bet it'd be pretty damn good. Yeah, probably would. Um, but the point is, we need American stars. And, and we've got American stars on the women's side. Obviously, right. Serena is, to me, the greatest female player of all time. I don't care how many majors Margaret Court won. 11 of them were in Australia when, you know, nobody went down there. Right. And, and, you know, her sister was obviously a great player and there have been some other Lindsay Davenport and, uh, there's and there, and, and, Stevens. And, yeah. And we, and we seem to have a constant flow of good, really good young American female, right. players. Sloan Stevens, Madison keys, Coco Goff now, CC Bellis, you know, all sorts right. of, all sorts of, you know, maybe not they're they're, they're not yet all time greats, but they're always, but you they're feel very like they're competitive in, the mix. in grand slams. Is it a simple, is I, it, I think it was, you, was it three years ago? We had four, all four, four semifinalists yes. at the Open were Americans. Yeah, Coco Vandeweghe, Madison Keys, Sloane Stevens, and uh, I think v- I think it was Venus was in there. It might have been Venus. I think Venus lost to um, Stevens. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, point is that's answer number one. We need okay. so we need an American male star. Great player, a great I mean, player. Just really, at least one. Yeah, really not a guy who can maybe make the four. You know, right. uh, we've had some good player. I mean, John Isner's a good player. Yep. yep. But he's not a great player. Right. And you know, he made one semifinal in his life in a, in a Grand Slam. Um, that's number one. Now the other one is completely different, and is is it, it, it will sound self serving, but I don't really cover tennis anymore, so right. it's not self serving. Access to tennis players has mm-hmm. always been the worst. There is. Mm-hmm. When I went to write A Good Walk Spoiled, shortly after I wrote Hard Courts, okay. I felt like I had died and gone to heaven. The difference between dealing with the pro tennis player and the pro golfer? Some of it is age, right? because most golfers don't become stars until later, whereas mm-hmm. many tennis players become stars in their teens, and, mm-hmm. and, and most don't graduate from college. You're an exception as a guy who had success as a pro who has a college degree. Right. There's a few um, more. There's a few more now, but you're right. Generally, out of the top hundred, there's generally a handful. speaking, yeah, and they're yeah. usually and they're usually and, not the, and they're usually not the top top players. They're like, and they're usually not stars, right? right? I mean, your brother went to Stanford for a year, right? And I remember I asked him once why he was so good about playing Davis Cup. He said, "I promised my mother two things: that I would graduate from college and play Davis Cup. When I dropped out of college, I figured I damn well better play <laughs> Davis Cup, <laughs> right? Because he never went back to Stanford, right?" Exactly. Yeah. So, but my point is that's one thing, but the other thing is just the, the basic access. Mm-hmm. You go to a golf tournament 
You want to find a, a player? You can walk in the locker room to find him. You can walk on the range to find him. You can walk on the putting green to find him. You can walk inside the ropes and talk to him while they're playing right. most of the time. Mm-hmm. And in tennis, you know, it's completely the opposite. I, I Again, bringing up John, one year, you remember Stratton Mountain, one of the most yes. beautiful places they've ever had a tournament. In Vermont. Yeah. And he and I had made plans to talk after he played his semifinal, mm-hmm. contingent on winning, of course. Of and course. he did. Right. And he wanted to go and sit down in the player's lounge because it was empty and it was quiet and it was easy. Right. And his security guard gave him, you know, a hard time about bringing me in because the media mm. wasn't allowed in there. Mm-hmm. And John's saying, there's nobody in there, dude. Right. And, and I don't care. These are my orders. So finally he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You go tell Jim Westhall, I'm not playing the final tomorrow because <laughs> right. you won't let my, my right. friend come in here with right. me. Amazing. And so, so do you think so it's, is it the more, guard back down? Right. Is it more about the, like the, the politics of tennis? Is it about the players themselves, their agents, their managers? What, what, I mean, cause you've obviously dealt with I, the tours. So what is, yeah. where's that coming from? It's, uh, it's the agents, because you know this. The agents run tennis because there's no one group Entity. in charge of tennis. Right. PG, the PGA Tour essentially runs golf. Now, there's the European Tour, right. and they run the tournaments over there. But you know how tennis is. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's alphabet soup. Right. No, and one, guy, one group's in charge one week, and another group's in charge the next week. And when you go to a Grand Slam, the ITF's in charge, the WTA's in charge, the ATP Tour's in charge – you know, mm-hmm. you can't even figure out who to go to. Right. Well, let me, and, get, let, let me, let me say, let me tell you, I want to, cause I want to get your reaction to this because this is something I've been thinking about. I've mentioned it numerous times on television over the past couple of years. And one of the only good things I think that's coming out of this pandemic for professional tennis is the fact that finally, even though the prize money has go, is gone way down, right? Because tennis relies on the gate more so than any other sport. Right even more so way more than golf because golf has much bigger TV deals just in general. And I think bigger sponsors. Hockey too. Hockey too. But tennis, at least now, uh, the prize money distribution has, is, is changing, meaning the, it used to basically go, uh, go up double with each round you win. So, for example, if you win the U.S. Open in singles, you make, I'm throwing out the number, it was, you know, $4 million, right? And then the right. person who comes in second, who gets to the final, makes usually $2 million, and then down one, and then it goes half. up. With, and if you look at golf, okay, if you win the Masters or you win the U.S. Open golf, let's say that the number is normally much less than winning a major You get tennis. 18% of the purse for winning. Okay, so and then if you come in sex, so if you get $2 million, let's say, to win the Masters, I'm throwing out, an, again, a number. If you get come in second place, you get $1.8 million, $1.7 million. If you come in third place, $1.6 million. But in tennis, it's so skewed that the, right. you know, the top players make so much more than the really good player that's, you know, David Ferrer, for example. This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun, you know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. 
All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RiaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise you will love these sunglasses. This episode of Holding Court is being brought to you by True. That's T-R-U, the lifestyle beverage. Absolutely amazing. Go to drinktrue.com to learn more. I suggest you try out the True Sampler, 30% off with the code PATRICK. What's your reaction to Because I feel like, I mean, I know tennis is always driven by the stars. And you're, in a sense, making that argument about where why American tennis is struggling in the you know, overall, well, but did, does that make yeah, sense to it, you? Yes, it does. And, 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 but I think every sport is star driven. I mean, when Tiger Woods was in the accident, mm-hmm. uh, back in March, um, there, there were, you know, people say, Oh, golf is dead. Mm-hmm. You know, Tiger is not going to play anymore. Golf is dead. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course. When he had all his injuries, Rory McIlroy won four majors, Brooks Kepka won four, Jordan Spieth Jordan won three, Spieth, became right. a huge star. Right. So it, sports are star driven in mm-hmm. general and, and TV ratings go up when stars are involved. But to your point, one of the reasons golf survives is because week in and week out, it's on television. Mm-hmm. And when the stars aren't playing, the guys who are contending are people that we know we being fans, right? Because you've had the chance to get, get to know them through the media. I mean, I know mm-hmm. I sound Again, self-serving for the media, but like when I wrote A Good Walk Spoiled, which as you mentioned was the number one bestseller, the biggest star in that book to the people who read it Mm -hmm. was a guy named Paul Goidos, Mm -hmm. who had never won on the PGA Tour, but has has now won twice and he's playing the senior tour, but people related to the struggle Mm -hmm. that he had to just try to make a living in golf because... I got the chance to, to tell them about that struggle. Mm-hmm. And most tennis writers don't get the chance to tell people more about David Ferrer or, uh, you know, other good players. Uh, Francis Tiafo got a lot of media. Why? A, because he was an American mm-hmm. when we haven't had American stars and B, because he's black. And he's got, and and I, and I, and I'm he's perfectly got a, and fine it, with that, but right. we need to have more of that. Right. He's got an in interesting tennis. backstory because his dad was, he you know, does, right, yeah, he, he right. does. And he's an articulate kid and, right. and that's all good. But, there are in golf, like the first interview I ever did on the golf tour when I was working on a good walk spoil, mm-hmm. I sat down with Davis love sure. and it was the, on a Wednesday afternoon, he played the pro-am in a hundred degree weather in Williamsburg, Virginia. We're in a condo and we're sitting there and about two hours into the interview, mm. I said to him, how are you with time? And he said, well, you said you were writing a book. So I just blocked off the whole afternoon. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and the contrast to that is Henri Lacan, who I loved. Right. I loved his personality. I loved him on the court. He was a terrific player to watch. But when I in, you know, told him I was working on a book on tennis, he said, and athletes ask this all the time in all sports, how much time do you need? And, mm-hmm. and you learn after a while, Patrick, you lie. Right. So I said, I don't know, Henri, 20, 30 minutes. And he went, what? <laughs> like I had asked for his firstborn child. Right. And Norm, and basically you were thinking you need at least like two hours, right? So oh yeah, yeah. Easily. Uh, easily. I, when I, when I asked, first talked to Jack Nicholas, he said, how much time do you need? And I, I don't know, Jack, about an hour. And he started laughing. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I've never given anybody an hour in my life. Well, the fact is Nicholas, most of Nicholas's answers take an hour. Mm. He ended up giving me four hours, but I, so I understand that, that, you know, the athletes don't want to commit to that kind of time necessarily, but once you get them talking, if you can get them talking, they'll, they'll give it to you. And, and one other thing, cause I don't want to harp on this too much, but I think I do some of my best reporting when I don't have a notebook out or a tape recorder on. Yeah, and what I mean by that is right. I'll walk into right. a, a locker room somewhere and I'll just start talking, you know, this time of year, if I was covering spring training, I'd talk to the guys about the basketball tournament mm-hmm. coming up. Right. Um, you know, when we're taping this obviously in March, but, right. um, but, and, and I would walk on the range of golf tournaments and again, talk about the basketball tournament or talk about baseball or football or whatever it might be. How's your family? And without taking out a notebook, because then they see you as a person, mm-hmm. but in tennis, the players don't get to see reporters as a person because there's no access. Yeah, not to mention, I think mean, not. I'll defend tennis. I mean, I totally agree with everything you're saying. But the, the, the one of the problems for tennis, the issues, is because it's so international, and you know, the PGA Tour is the PGA Tour. It's just in the United States. Whereas tennis, you know, you if you're Roger Federer, for example, and you're done with your match at the Australian Open or wherever it is, you know, you've got 13 different requests from you know different countries, and you got to do one in this language, this in another language, and so on. So I think that's. That's part of the problem for tennis. But generally, I agree. I got to ask, you brought up um, the, the college tournament, okay? And I got to ask you, because I'm very interested in this topic, which you've written about, The Back Roads to March, is one of your great books you wrote um, about um, college sports, college hoops in general. You've written about Dean Smith and Mike Krzyzewski and Jimmy V as well. So when you, when you look at the landscape now of college sports, where is it going? Obviously, the pay for play is that going to happen? But but I'm I'm actually interested in how this affects you know the smaller sports, obviously tennis, but you know even sports like lacrosse and swimming, you know that aren't the big money sports. So it's football and basketball. Right. We know that's about the money. Um, as the pandemic is you know I think going to change a lot of the ways even universities operate moving forward. How do you see that landscape changing over time, if at all, for college athletics in general? Yeah, well, and I speak as someone who was a swimmer in college, so I, I was part of those non-revenue sports. Um, I, there will be some form of pay-for-play. The, the, the name, image, and likeness thing is going to happen um, because the NCAA's hand has been forced by all of these state legislatures that have passed bills allowing name, image, and license, and their first reaction, of course, was to try to blackmail California and say, well, your athletes won't be able to play in NCAA events if you do this. And California just went, screw you, which was the right response. Um, and Congress now has legislation before. And the NCAA, it, it's great because Mark Emmert stands up and says, oh, we want to do everything we can to help the student athletes, which is, by the way, a redundant term, <laughs> since by rule you have to be a college student to be a college athlete. Um, but, and, and then they, they, they're going to the Supreme Court now to try to limit Mm-hmm. how much can be made by, by athletes uh, in college because they want to protect the amateur uh, term. Mm-hmm. And you, <clears throat> being from the tennis world, <clears throat> right. you know how bogus the term amateur is and can be. But eventually there will be some form of payment for mm-hmm. the revenue sport athletes. And you know th- th- they'll have to write the legislation carefully because what it needs to say is that you get a percentage of net revenues if you play a 
men's basketball or football. Right. Because those are the revenue sports. Right. Those are the two. Those yeah. are the ones that make money. Yep. So that a swimmer can't turn around and say, well, where's mine? Mm-hmm. Right. And the answer is, well, your, your team didn't make any money for the school. Your team lost money. Right. And, tennis, and is in, tennis is in the same boat. Yeah. Tennis is in the same boat. Yeah. Golf is in Everybody's right. in the same boat. There right. might be four or five women's basketball teams that make money. Connecticut women's basketball makes money. Okay. Tennessee's women's basketball used to make money. Um, but it, it will happen. It's inevitable. It will take time because the NCAA will go down kicking and screaming. But to your more important question about where does college athletics go, mm-hmm. my, my, my brilliant answer is I have no clue. Mm. Uh, because as you said, coming out of the pandemic, we don't know mm-hmm. financially where all these schools are going to stand. They've been able to stay on their feet because of TV money. Right. And, and they're, I, I, I'm sure you saw the story uh, that Michigan State basketball mm-hmm. is now going to be officially known as Michigan State basketball um, uh, 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 presented by Rocket Mortgage. Oh, that's literally going to be their, their wow. official name. Wow. And that's the direction we're going in. Corporate mm-hmm. America rules sports. You remember the, the, the famous scene a few years ago at the U.S. Open where um, who was it who beat Federer in the final in 2009? Del Potro? Well, yeah, Del Potro, who's yeah. been injured a lot right. since then. Right. So he wins the U.S. Open, and he says to Dick Enberg, one of the greatest broadcasters mm-hmm. in history, who's mm-hmm. doing the on-court ceremony, you were yep. there. Yes. And he says, may I speak in Spanish for a moment? Mm-hmm. And, and Enberg, because he's got the truck screaming in his ear, right. don't presents give him the, the mic. car. Right, don't give him the mic. Right, right, right. Don't give him the mic. Right. Right. says, well, we don't have time for that one, but uh, here are your keys to a brand new whatever the car was. <laughs> right, 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 right. Because right? Right. corporate America had to get its moment. Had to get it. And so many fans booed that Dick finally gave him the mic for like a minute. Right, right. And I felt so bad for Dick because it was totally out of his control. Totally. And I felt bad for Del Potro, too. I've been, but that's, but, yeah, but, that's sports today. It's yeah. corporate America. I wonder how that's going to impact, as you said, the, 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 the other sports, you know, because I get people in the tennis world, you know, what's going to happen with college sports, with college tennis. And, you know, because you look, I mean, I at our tennis academy in New York that, um, you know, I'm the co-director at uh, it. You know, look, most most of the parents, I mean, a few of them are crazy enough to think their their kid might be. Uh, the next Serena or the next Johnny Mac, but most of them are, right. you know, know that, Hey, this is a way to get into college and it's a great, you know, activity to do and it help us get into a good college or maybe get a scholarship. And so you kind of wonder how that's going to play out because, you know, there's no system like this in Europe or Australia. I mean, this is why you, we're inundated in this country with, or players, even in Canada or even in Canada with players coming from all over the world to go to college, to play tennis, to play, be on the swim team, you know, volleyball, you know, all those second tier sports. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how the pay for play then affects the other sports uh, moving forward. All right. So let's move on to, to you and what you've been doing. Obviously you still can write, you still can do your columns. I know you also spend a lot of time traveling, giving speeches, which you do an unbelievable job and just, you know, talking to schools, talking to different groups. So what, how has your world changed in the last year with the pandemic and with, all the stuff that you do and how do you see that evolving as we hopefully get back to normal sometime later this year? Yeah, it's a great question. And I hope we will get back to normal because, uh, I do do a lot of speaking and I really enjoy it. It's fun. 
Um, as you know, cause you've known me for years, I have no problem talking. No, you do. Not. Uh, and you do it and, well. And I've yeah. enjoyed and, yeah. and so I, I all, I was just coming into my so-called speaking season mm-hmm. when the pandemic hit, you know, the final four, the masters, golf right. majors, events like that. And that all went away. And in the last few years, I've also done a lot of mid-major college basketball games on television, mm. which, which I really enjoy because it's really nice to go to games where people are glad to see you. Right. Rather right. than if you go to a, a big time game, they're like, oh, God, do I really have to talk to you? So <laughs> right. I went in the 2019-2020 season, I did 42 games on TV. Wow. This past season, I just did my last game last, uh, last in early March. Uh, I, I did 16 mm-hmm. um, because a lot of schools just couldn't afford to, to, do the, to televise their games. Right, um, right. And so I've missed that tremendously because I enjoy doing both those things. And obviously I enjoy the money, but, uh, as you said, I still write for the post. I started something, uh, Patrick, that you might get a kick out of, um, a few months ago. It's called story time with John Feinstein. Yeah. I saw that on and your, on your website, which by the way, I want to plug cause it's great. Jfeinsteinbooks.com and you can follow all the John's books. And, and so tell me a little right. bit about that story time. Cause I know you've written a lot of so mysteries. This, for this kids. actually came from the pandemic Okay, because when the pandemic started and everybody was kind of locked down, a number of my Twitter followers said, Hey, how would you feel about just telling us a story every morning just to give us mm. something to start the day with? Mm-hmm. So I started doing something called the anecdote of the day. And it was mostly backstage stuff, you know, mm-hmm. behind the scenes stuff, not stuff that I had written. And people loved it. Mm. And several of my colleagues said, you need to do more with this. Mm-hmm. So a, a friend of mine who's more techno uh, oriented than I am, which is almost anybody, um, and I put together these things. And you, if you go to my website, like you mentioned, jfeinsteinbooks.com. You can find a link to it. And three times a week, I just sit in front of my fireplace and I tell a story. Um, the one that, that, that went up the day you and I taped this interview in March uh, was about my battle, my various battles around the world with security people. Uh, and <laughs> right. Tony Kornheiser, my, my good friend, yep. has told me the only book of mine he would ever read would be if I wrote a book about my battles with security people. <laughs> You know, and the one in Stratton Mountain was just a, a minor just example. That was just a small one. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. I've had them literally all around the world. Lendl once almost got me arrested in Australia mm-hmm. because he was getting ready for the Australian Open and he was training at, at the Sydney tournament with his coach, Tony Roach. Right. And he said to me, you know, meet me at nine o'clock in the morning. I'll be done working out because he would work out very early because of the heat. Right. Uh, and we can talk for a couple hours. So I, you know, started to walk into the locker room and I was stopped. The, t- the matches hadn't even started yet that day. Mm-hmm. You can't go in there. Well, Yvonne Lendl's waiting for me. You can go in and confirm that he's waiting for me. I don't right. care. You can't go in there. This is the one unpleasant Australian I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and so I walked around. I was going to go back and get somebody from the tour to help me out. And I noticed the back door that was open. Mm-hmm. So I just walked in the back door and mm-hmm. there was Lendl and we did our thing. And when I told him what had happened, so of course, you know, you know what a wise guy Wendell can be. Yes, I do. And he, so he said, let's walk out front door. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, let's go out the back door. Let's walk out front door. (laughs) So we walk out the front door. And of course, Wendell makes a point of saying to in front of the security guards, we just had great talk in there. It was wonderful. (laughs) And now they, they, so they wanted to arrest me. Right. Right. And fortunately, Bob Green, who you probably remember, played your brother in the fourth round of the open one time. Yeah. He was working for the tour at the time, and he walked up and said to the guards, just stop, leave him alone. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't get arrested that time. Um, 
but uh, so I, I've had uh, my my battles around the world with security people, and that's what today's story time is about. Oh, okay. I may tell that. In fact, I think I told the Lendl story uh, in there. Lendl was having such a good time with it. Oh, he, um, he loved that was all the, that That stuff. was the day when he said to me, uh, who did you vote for in 1988? And I said, Dukakis. He said, oh, so you're a communist. <laughs> don't I get, said, well, it takes one to know one. Yeah, right. Don't get started on the last you know? couple of years. And, of course, he was a big Republican because he was rich. Right. But um, but that's what story time is. It's me telling uh, stories about, you know, events like that, moments like that in my life with different people. Me getting arrested by the Czech secret police uh, in 1986. Story, stories with your brother, mm-hmm. um, of which I had many, as you know. Yes. And um, and so it's been a lot of fun to do, and the response to it's been great. And I'm working on a book right now mm-hmm. uh, that I started well before George Floyd okay. on race and sports. Oh, wow. Because I okay. thought it was the elephant in the room for years. Right. And the anthem protests in 2017 convinced me that I needed to write a book on on the subject, and it's been fascinating to work on. Oh, I'm sure. Well, I will look forward to that, and um, I certainly be a great Christmas present for your friends. I absolutely, hope. absolutely. I'll buy a whole bunch. I'll give them out at the academy with along with mine. I'll say because mine, I just give them away at this point. So um, I appreciate <laughs> you doing this. Before before I let you go, you've given me already more time, uh, and I'm very appreciative. It's been awesome to catch up. The one tennis match you remember more than any other. Whether you were there, whether on TV, what's the one match you remember? You know, um, I, I, obviously your brother's match with Borg, which mm-hmm. I saw on TV, comes right to mind. But later that year, they played in the U.S. Open final. Right. And uh, John won the first two sets, mm-hmm. and Borg won the next two. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the fourth set, I'll never forget this, the entire crowd was on its feet cheering for Borg. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, how much did it feel to be John? Mm-hmm. 15 minutes from where he grew up. Right. And he, John won the fifth set, broke him early, yep. held and won the fifth set. So when the match was over, you know, the, the post-match ceremony, and then John went into the interview room. And I don't know, do you remember Barry Lorge? Sure, absolutely. Great tennis yep. writer yep. for the Washington Post. And I was just there as a the sidebar guy. I was mm-hmm. a kid. I was just out of college. And Barry said to me, look, you've got some time, because I, I was always a fast rider, Barry Slow. Mm-hmm. Great, but slow. Mm-hmm. And he said, why don't you go back to the locker room and see if you can talk to McEnroe? Mm-hmm. So I followed John back to the locker room. There was nobody around, of course. The tournament's over. Right. And I walked in there, and it's just he and I. Mm. And I'd never met him at that point. And he's looking at me like, who the blank are you? Right. So I introduced myself, and, and he, said, he said, yeah, what do you want? And I said, I just wanted to ask you one question. Right. You grew up 15 minutes from here. Mm-hmm. How did you feel when all those people were standing there cheering for Borg? And you know how your brother is. He talked for 20 minutes without stopping at that point. Right. Just about his, his first line was, I thought my whole body was going to fall off, which is a classic John mm-hmm. line. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and then he went on about, can you imagine if we were playing that match in Sweden? Right. Do you think anybody would have been pulling for me and, and how, yeah, I know I don't behave great all the time, but I think I'm a pretty good player. And this is my second straight U.S. Open, right. blah, 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 blah. And, and that was the start of our friendship, really. Amazing. And yeah. I wrote, I was supposed to write a 20-inch sidebar. I wrote 40 inches. They put it on the front next to Barry's yeah. story. Wow. Um, and it was all because of John, not because of me. I didn't write anything special. But John's quotes, as, as you know, mm-hmm. were always great. And, um, and that's why I, I've always said, um, 
that he's, you know, when people say, who are your all-time favorite athletes? You and John are both on the list. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so good last man, thing, because I know yeah. you got to go. Yeah. Yeah, You're going to have to edit this. But do you remember when I wrote the Inside Sports piece in which I was saying that all the things that were wrong with tennis? Yes, I do remember. And, and I said at the end of the piece, I said, the best thing you can do for tennis is put everybody in a room and blow the room up mm-hmm. except for five people. And you were one of the five people. <laughs> and we were t- talking in Miami that, that week because you had right. picked up the, the, the magazine in an airport or something. And you said, I was sitting there getting angrier and angrier. And then I saw I was one of the five people you weren't going to blow up. And I decided, pretty good piece. Oh, I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love that. Oh, uh, man. Well, I'm still standing. You know, somehow we're still here and we're still yeah. we're keeping the faith. And you're 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 you've, you know, just continue to just do awesome things, John. And uh, it's been great having you on. I really appreciate you doing it. And uh, let's hope we well, come- it's the least yeah. I could do after all the, the time you gave me when when you were playing and, and we had good times together. We did. We did. And I always the thing I always say to people is. I was never a great athlete. I was a decent swimmer, but I couldn't make a living as a swimmer, obviously. But for me to get to do the things I've done the last 40 years and get paid to do it, are you kidding me? Yeah, that's uh, that's still how I feel about tennis. So we're in the same boat. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Unbelievably lucky. All right. Well, you keep it up and uh, we'll stay in touch and hopefully we'll be able to actually get together at some point. That would be great. I would love to do that. All right, John. Feinstein. Sooner rather than later, but it won't be sooner. The great John Feinstein. Check out his website, buy his books, and uh, you will be very educated and entertained. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.